Like the early Lewises and Merriweathers, the Clark and Rogers line that gets us to William is complex and still needs more research, even if it has the same pitfalls that have bedraggled us before. The fascinating thing about modern genealogy websites is one's ability to dive further and further back into the past. However, it's best to remain skeptical and to work with absolutes. We can enhance our understanding just fine without having to potentially trace one back to the Norman conquest of England in 1066. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we explore the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are everywhere at Expeditions Pod, social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently at Mile Marker 4, episode Cursed Timelines, The Clarks and the Rogers. With all that being said, your mileage may vary on Wikitree getting us back to Andreas Capellanus, also known as Dick Clark, from Woodchurch in England from 1095. From those heady days, which includes for me a very amateur search in the Doomsday Book, which was compiled in 1086 to survey William the Conqueror's conquered kingdom, brought me no luck. But relying on anything a thousand years old is pretty wild, though I will say the Open Doomsday website is a phenomenal resource and totally worth checking out. Either way, your mileage varying from Capellinus or de Clark, we meet Woodchurches, a Clark Woodchurch, a Clark without the E, then we go back to Clark with an E, as certain 19th century writers and Thomas Jefferson himself would use for decades. Hell, there would even be a few clerks with an E through the 14th and 15th centuries. You can see how this can be fun, but it's not really tangible. We start to close in on a slew of John Clarks with an E, as the 16th century comes to a close. From my diving into this line as an outsider, it looks like Sir John, the Baron of the Exchequer, is a solid starting place. He was born in June 1585 in Wortham, Kent, where he would live his entire life, dying there in 1644. He married Elizabeth Steed on June 1st, 1608. This is where things get contentious. It appears that they had three children together, another John, Edward, and William. John appears to have sailed to Jamestown, living at Middle Plantation with his wife, Hannah Wyatt, where he, where he died in the same year as his father, but an ocean apart. He died when a tree branch fell on him. They appear to have no children, as the 850 acres formerly belonging to John Clark, with an E, went into the Wyatt family. Back in Wortham, Edward, who may also not be Elizabeth's child, lived and died from roughly 1602 to 1661 in Thurplow, South Cambridgeshire District. There's no indication that he went to Virginia and returned, so his parentage to Jonathan, who we'll meet soon, is dubious. Finally, William. He also died in 1644, a few months before his father, at the Battle of Croperty Bridge, fighting for the king in the English Civil War. If our new pioneer or emigrant, John Clark, arrived in Jamestown but had no children, how do we connect the line? 1635 appears to be a strong bet. There was a 38-year-old John who arrived on the Constance, along with a John Sparks who was claiming head rights, that is, 50 acres for every man who paid their way on the Virginia colony. 
Um, and he was paying for 15 people, including John Clark. Perhaps in the haze of Johns and Clarks, there is a missing link there. The Jonathan that may connect these Clarks to the great-grandfather of our William Clark resides in that fog. Perhaps it's as simple as Jonathan was his young nephew, from Edward, let's say, though other sources based on emails say this Jonathan was William's son. However, if Jonathan was born in Virginia, how? Arriving in Virginia isn't as difficult to determine for the Rogers side of the tree. Our William's mother, Anne, was the daughter of, wait for it, John Rogers, who was himself born in Chesapeake Bay. And I mean that literally. He was aboard a ship, perhaps the HMS George or another, on February 26, 1680. But the extended genealogy is just as complex and, as we discussed yesterday, tainted by fraudulent sources and potentially imagined people. Family lore also has the Rogers tracing back to the years just before the Norman Conquest. A Roger was born in 1095, same as our Andreas Capellinus, a.k.a. De Clark, but unlike the Clarks, they stayed put for centuries. Roger became Roger II of Sicily, inheriting his father's spoils and spending his life at war in Italy, but that's a story for another time. 400 years later, the Rogers traced themselves to Reverend John Rogers, Protestant rebel who worked on an English translation of the Bible. He'd be arrested for heresy and martyred, burned at the stake in 1555. It's from the martyr John Rogers that our pal, Gustave Anjou, who produced hundreds of fake genealogies to stake the claim to royalty, to the first families of Virginia, and to religious figures, re-enters our story. Prior to John Rogers burning at the stake, he would have children, including Bernard Rogers, in 1543. It appears that he died 20 years later, still a young man. In 1911, a John C. Underwood, using claims from Anjou, created, that's in quotes, created a Thomas Matthew born in 1565. Now, the name Thomas wasn't uncommon, but its connection to the work of martyr John Rogers wasn't lost on anyone. John Rogers' pseudonym was Thomas Matthew, and the Bible that he published was known as the Thomas Matthew Bible. So, this Thomas, this created Thomas, could be claimed wherever a family needed to plug a hole or hop to the New World. Over the years, these Thomases would be debunked. He is not a Mayflower pilgrim. He is not the builder of Harvard House at 26 High Street in Stratford-upon-Avon, who was the grandfather to John Harvard, the namesake of the university. He was not Thomas of Waterton, Massachusetts, or Connecticut. If Bernard didn't have children and Thomas didn't exist, then where did John Rogers, the grandfather to our William's mother, Anne, come from? Perhaps there is a Thomas somewhere, obscured now. It seems likely that the fictional ties are more of a creation than of an actual man. Either way, a John Rogers, not to be confused with the Mayflower John Rogers, would marry Lucy Iverson in 1641. If this John ever left the British Isles requires more research and a cleansing of this perceived line. His first son, however, Giles, was born in 1645. Lineage aside, he emigrated to Virginia in 1670, patented land in April of that year, sailed back to England to marry Rachel Eastman. However, something apparently happened to Rachel, as Giles would end up marrying her sister, Lucy Eastman, in the same year. It appears Lucy was the mother of all of Giles' children, so it was her, not Rachel, anchored off the Chesapeake Bay, choosing to name their newborn son, John, again.
As Giles and Rachel landed and made their way to their land grant on Dragon Swamp in King and Queen County, Virginia, a John Clark had been born circa 1665 and was roughly 15 years old. Maybe. William Foley in his biography of William Clark Wilderness Journey wrote, quote, The earliest of his paternal forebearers to arrive in Virginia was John Clark, an Englishman from the county Kent who settled on the James River in the late 17th century. He also relates family lore that the red hair that William Clark would become famous for west of the Mississippi came from the Jonathan that we had previously left who didn't appear to be the son of the John Clark who died by the felled tree and may have been born in England, at some point somehow made it to Virginia and at some point somehow married a maybe redheaded woman, possibly Mary Bird, perhaps in 1656, maybe. One way or another, John would end up being born in 1665 and would marry an Elizabeth Lumpkin, which resulted in another Jonathan being born in 1698. This Jonathan is our William's paternal grandfather. And this is where it gets a little bit messy again. He would end up marrying Elizabeth Ann Wilson, but Jonathan would die young in 1734, and it's unclear if their son, who was also a Jonathan, born October 9th or the 20th of 1725, was the only son, or as William Foley notes, quote, Jonathan left a widow Elizabeth and four surviving children, end quote. He'd also leave a land grant of 3,277 acres, patented in 1734, on which his son would move. Elizabeth would remarry, and per usual, this line continues to be a mess. There's a Makaja Clark, there's a Jonathan Clark III, who is perhaps related somewhere as their areas overlap. I may need more time to understand the discrepancies and try better to understand how any of these people are related, and that's something um, in this podcast we'll do a supplemental on at some point if, if, if I learn more. Anyways, this child, Jonathan, would be our William's father. Meanwhile, across the James, we find John Rogers looking out on the bay where he'd been born in 1680. The Rogers provided young John with an education, and he became a surveyor of the Tidewater region. It's been said that in 1716, he married Mary Bird. However, this is not the previously mentioned Mary Bird, the possible wife of the possible Jonathan. This Mary was the youngest of Colonel William Bird and Mary Horsemanden, the beginnings of the influential Virginia family that would go into the 20th century. Did I say was, though? I meant could. It appears John was married, maybe also married, to a Rachel Eastman. Like Mary Bird, don't get this Rachel Eastman confused with Giles' wife, who died suddenly and whose sister Lucy married Giles in her stead. This Rachel appears to be the daughter of George Eastman and, get ready for it, Mary Bird, but not that Mary Bird or that Mary Bird, not the Bird's B-Y-R-D at all, but Mary Bird, like the animal. Maybe. Anyhow, somehow, John M. Rogers and Rachel Eastman presumably have a daughter, Anne, on October 28th, 1728. The major difference to me from yesterday's episode is the cloudiness of the entire line of the Rogers and the Clarks. We talked a lot about sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of the Lewises and the Merriweathers, but I hope I've been able to convey how cursed this entire genealogy is. It's not just Anjou or Thomas Matthew, fabricated titles or made-up individuals. The relatively agreed-upon family trees are complicated to wrap one's head around. 
Even to the parents of William Clark were unsure of basic information, specifically the Bird connections as they'd become an influential family in Virginia, as I mentioned. As we saw with the Merriweather and Lewis families consolidating familial wealth, the birds would be quite a multiplying factor into the Rogers and Clark lines, though it appears they did well for themselves as it was. Similar to the Lewis and Merriweather episode, the Rogers and Clarks grew closer as time went on. According to Landon Jones, the families, quote, intermingled closely enough that when Anne married John Clark in 1747, she was marrying her second cousin. Surely on hand for the wedding were the Rogers. John and Rachel would live another 15 years or so. John died around 1762, while Rachel died in 1765. And the Clarks, Jonathan had died in 1734, but his mother would have been at the midpoint of her life. John and Anne would have many children, most of whom were going to meet along the way. Jonathan, Anne, who unfortunately died as an infant, George Rogers, Anne Rogers, Elizabeth, and Lucy, followed by William and his little sister, Frances, also known as Fanny. William was born on the 1st of August, 1770. We can be sure that Elizabeth Ann was just as enthralled with this last son as she must have been for all the rest of her grandchildren. It's unclear exactly when she moved to Lunenburg, Virginia. As a native of Virginia, I had never heard of Lunenburg, Virginia. Perhaps she departed when the Clarks departed for Kentucky in October of 1784, perhaps knowing it would be the last time that she would ever see them and they would ever see her. <laughs>